This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we take an inside look at low-fee private schools. With me is Joanna Herma, who has recently published the book Low-Fee Private Schooling and Poverty in Developing Countries. There are hardly any really low-fee private schools the way there were before. Now, most of the schools are of a sort of higher standard, like you wouldn't get the really, really ramshackle, um, poor infrastructure, like low-fee private schools the way I found back in 2005, 2006 when I did that research. Now they're much more sort of well-to-do and the real low-fee private schools are quite rare. So you have to, to go to specific villages to find low-fee private schools, but slightly better standard private schools are now everywhere. Joanna Herma is a writer and researcher on education and development. She also owns and operates a low-fee private school in India. Joanna is a visiting research fellow at the Center for International Education at the University of Sussex and a teaching fellow at the University of Edinburgh. Joanna Herma, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me. So when did you first open your school in India? Our school opened in July 2004, and it started with uh, four grades of primary school and the pre-primary section. And since then, we've expanded right up through the senior secondary level. And um, before the, the pandemic, we had about 550 students. Wow. And where in India is it? It's in western Uttar Pradesh in a remote rural village. It's it's actually a hamlet. It's not even a, a, a real village. Um, it's where my, my husband's family is from. So it's ancestral village and, and we, we built it on the family farm. Hmm. Wow. And can I ask why you decided that you wanted to create such a school? Yeah, so I had gone to India right after my, my master's in international human rights law, and I was working at um, the Nobel laureate uh, Kailash Satyarthi's um, NGO, uh, the anti-child labor NGO, and that's where I met my husband, and we both just got increasingly interested in in education because the whole point of the NGO was getting children out. Well, the, the slogan was from exploitation to education. So we met a lot of child laborers and, and found that cost was still an issue for many, even with supposedly fee-free government schooling. Hmm. So um, we wanted to start a school that was completely free. So I was in charge of the fundraising and and we went from there and and that that was what we did so it was originally completely free of cost until the point where the international financial crisis happened and at that point strangely things had sort of improved in in the local area so daily wage labor earnings had actually gone up while the rest of the world was um, in a downward spiral. And so we lost a lot of monthly donations during that period while people there were earning a bit more. So we introduced some fees for people who could afford it and kept it free for the for the poorest. And so now it's a sort of mixed model, partly charitable funding and some fees for, for the better off people. Huh, interesting. And in this hamlet, is there... Is there a government school? Not in the hamlet because it's such a, a tiny place. So um, 
So there are government schools in all the surrounding villages. So th there's there would be absolutely no problem of of access for for people trying to to send their child to a government school. But there isn't a government school in that exact location. Hmm. Interesting. And so, you know, after the global financial crisis where you decided to introduce some fees, particularly to the more well-off students, does that mean that your school is considered a low-fee private school? Well, I, yeah, I, I think people in the, in the area would pretty much view it that way um, because we, we've never charged fees any, that are anywhere near what a school that's providing what we actually provide, um, what what a normal school like that would charge. So I think people in the local area just view it that way because we've never actually sort of said that this is a you know charitable undertaking um, that's funded from outside because because of sort of local politics. You don't really want to go shouting about that how you're bringing money in from from outside. So I think. Probably people there would consider it like any other lower fee private school. Yeah. Can you give a little, give us a sense of how widespread low fee private schools are? I mean, if, if people in this hamlet just sort of assumed that your school was a low fee private school, that would mm. sort of assumes that low fee private schools are, are rather prevalent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are everywhere. So I did my, my PhD in this the same area and, and I surveyed schools uh, in 13 villages all around this very hamlet. So that was my, my doctoral research. And um, I went in really not expecting to find that much. And there were low-fee private schools everywhere, um, except for maybe one village that out of the 13. And um, a couple of villages had two or even three low-fee private schools. Um, but it's, but what has been, so it's just absolutely everywhere, even in this, this rural area. But what has been really interesting is how things have changed. So within 18 months of me doing my doctoral research, I think it was something like a quarter of my, my study schools had closed down. So. Wow. Why? Yeah. You know, I, I don't actually know. I never went back and, and tried to find out why that had happened. And so at first, um, I guess the assumption would be that, you know, maybe the villages where there were two or three schools, that was just too many for that area to, to sort of support. But since then, things have just changed to the point where there are hardly any really low-fee private schools the way there were before. Now, most of the schools are of a sort of higher standard, like you wouldn't get the really, really ramshackle, um, poor infrastructure, like low-fee private schools the way I found back in 2005, 2006 when I did that research. Now they're much more sort of well-to-do and the real low-fee private schools are quite rare. So you have to, to go to specific villages to find low-fee private schools, but slightly better standard private schools are now everywhere. So could we could call these like medium fee private schools? Yeah, yeah. So now, now that yeah, it's it's definitely moving in that direction. The phenomenon is is moving towards more um, medium fee in this area, and you know India is such a big country, so 
the the situation will vary in different parts of the state and of, of course different parts of the country but in this area things have just moved up a notch so is it because more people have you know more disposable income that they could afford higher fees in private school or is is does it have to do with you know private schools realizing that you can't actually make that much money with low fees and and there's you know if you ha- if you could charge higher fees you can actually earn more money yeah i think it's because for some reason since the time we opened in 2004 the um the way the daily wage has gone up a lot mm. so so now you're at the point where a daily wage laborer earns more than a private school teacher or a lower you know a, a less uh, experienced private school teacher so it's mm. yeah i would say i would put it down to the the increasing wages in the area yeah right and so where are government schools in all of this, all of these low fee and medium fee schools that you've seen and seen change over time. But, you know, are there government schools in these same villages where you've worked and researched? Yes. Yeah, there are. Um, Last winter, I actually went on some visits to some of the the government schools where I that I had visited as part of my my doctoral research. And um, they exist. There are teachers there. There are some children, but nothing happens. Just just like back when I did my, my research, there's no teaching going on when you walk up. I think in one or two schools, um, the teachers outnumbered the students who were present. So there's just huge amounts of money being spent on government school teacher salaries for for no teaching, basically, going on, at least in this area. Hmm. And um, it's really the just the poorest of the poor and, I guess, people for whatever reason who don't value or, or see any real benefit in, in investing in their ch- children's education. It, it's only those types of children who are sent there. So, yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, even even a low-fee private school excludes some children who can't afford even that low fee, and that's those children then can get picked up by the government schools. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely the case, and uh, that's what I found in every single place where I have studied this phenomenon. So, I would say the sort of lower middle class, as, as local people regard low-fee private school clients, um, they're usually lower middle class go to those schools and then the really poor go to government schools or or no school at all. No schooling at all is not really a thing in in that area of India where where we operate, but um, definitely in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, there's many children that just don't go to any school at all or government school. So. Mm-hmm. so these lower middle class families, you know, how do they decide which low fee or medium fee private school to even go to? I mean, I would imagine there's differences between these schools because they're all sort of operating independently in a way. Yes. Yeah, there really are. There are differences. Um, Every place where you find at least more than one of these schools, there will be stratification and, and sort of segmentation within this market of of schools Mm. so one of the the key things is proximity to home so i would say that that's 
an enormous factor for for many parents and and that is just international that's across the board one of the biggest things that parents always cite is is closeness to home and quality so they they talk about quality and proximity to home and then of course the fee level comes into that so what can they actually afford so all of these things are weighed up by the parents and when they talk about quality what they're saying is what they mean is what they can see so are the teachers there are they do they seem to be doing their job are they are they in the classroom in front of the students when they should be and you know usually you can sort of see see into the school from the the street either you know there's no boundary wall or or whatever you can see through the windows you know and then impressions from the community as well so people talk to other parents in the community and and discuss the various schooling options but this all implies that there's like a choice so if if you're looking at rural areas it would often be the case that there's either no private school at all or maybe one school in a village um so then it's really a case of can you afford the private school or can you not afford it right it's it's a uh, very few people might even have a choice between multiple schools to to select from yeah yeah i mean it's it's definitely very commonly the case in all of the the major city locations that i have studied um the big cities in sub-saharan africa that i've studied and now increasingly in this this rural area part of of india that that we operate in as well but yeah and then, and then when there is a lot of choice like in lagos where there are schools down every alleyway and there are other things that come in like some schools would be owned by the pastor in a church and and they sort of attract the the people who go to that church to send their children to the pastor's school. Hmm. So, yeah, there are different things, uh, different affiliations that lead people to make a school choice and religion will be one of them. So, maybe Muslim parents might want to send children to a school owned by a Muslim um even if it's not you know expressly a you know quranic school or or anything like that it, just the affiliations even caste in india so you you'll have hmm. a school that's owned by your particular caste grouping so you would feel more comfortable sending your child there so there are other affiliations and things that come into play as well that that's an interesting sort of stratification that goes on with where you end up sending your children to school so, can you tell me a little bit more about who owns some of these low-fee private schools? I mean, uh, you know, the school that you operate is uh, maybe considered an NGO school, or that's sort of where it started. Um, you gave some examples of some religious schools that sort of act as low-fee private schools. But who else is is owning and operating low-fee private schools? Yeah, so uh, I think that the history uh, going back... It really did start with a lot of religious um, organizations, so you know mission schools and and such. My husband is my same age, so forty three. So back in the eighties and nineties, he was going to um, Christian mission schools in in India, and then from I think about the the nineteen nineties, I would say that that things started broadening out both in India and and the other place that I've studied the most which is Nigeria so hmm. you would get just local community members just starting a school 
I would say almost by accident, like one of the the people I know the best in in Makoko in Lagos, he describes having started a sort of small just tutorial group with children in the in the the local area and parents liked it so much that they said you know why don't you start a school and and so it just went from there so a lot of the time the older schools so he started in the 1990s and i i would say that's where this sort of low-fee private schooling phenomenon really started about that era Hmm. it just started with community members just seeing a need. So, you know, government school systems hadn't expanded enough at that point, or, you know, the a lot of them still had fees uh, in, in into the early 2000s. So there wasn't even like a fee-free option. So a lot of the time it was people just in their own community seeing a need and, and basically stepping in to fill that gap. Huh. Have there been any chains that have emerged and, you know, low-fee school providers that have operate multiple schools in multiple locations, like seeing it more as a business rather than a community meeting a need? Yeah, well, I haven't found that much in the chain area. I think it's um, a lot of individuals who have started schools have found it quite quite challenging, quite difficult to, to manage. And, and it really, it is um, a, a very challenging thing to do well. And so in a lot of the places I've, I've studied this in, um, a person would start with pre-primary and then add a grade every year. So they might have started with a few, a handful of children in pre-primary up through, through maybe primary one, primary two, and then add right the way up. And then the most common thing would be to start a separate secondary school that where you know they would encourage families to to transition through to their their own secondary school and that's often on another site because it's partly just because it's difficult to to get land enough land huh interesting and in the indian context are these types of schools legal like does is this allowed by the government it is allowed um, but you have to, to apply for, for registration. So it's, I've never studied this in a place where you are not required to, to register your private school and, and where, you know, there's an application process that you have to go through. And it's, it's often quite difficult, quite, quite challenging, quite demanding. Mm. So a lot of schools start out unregistered. And then they go through the application process to gain registration or approval, as it's called in some places. But at the same time, in some places, it's so difficult that people just don't even want to try because they know that the type of school that they're running is just never going to meet the the stringent regulations. So especially like in places like Lagos, you'll get people just basically flying under the radar for years and years and years and not even starting the process of application because they know that they'll never succeed. Hmm. What are some of the regulations that the government is asking these low-fee private schools to, to follow and, and meet? So one of the big ones is is land, land ownership. You have to own a fairly sizable piece of land. And then there are all kinds of requirements for where that land should be. So that can be really, really tricky for somebody starting a school, say, in, a, in an urban slum, for example, in Lagos or Abuja. They would be required to be 
a certain distance away from certain things like filling stations or places where alcohol is served. And so requirements like this, when you're in a, a very dense urban slum, it's um, almost impossible. So a lot of such requirements basically have the effect of sort of outlawing any type of school opening there. So you, you get this strange kind of catch-22. Hmm. Then another problem is trying to find teachers who are, are fully qualified. In some places, that's that's really difficult. but And most of the time, that is a requirement that, that teachers are qualified. In some countries, it's not. Maybe there there's sometimes a requirement where at least one or two teachers has to be a fully qualified teacher. Um, but yeah, then there are many, many other requirements that are extremely challenging for, for schools to fulfill. Uh, I think one of them, the, the ones that I never saw fulfilled in a private school was in Nigeria, having a, a trained and qualified nurse on staff. Hmm. I mean, that, you know, things like that, just you wouldn't be able to run a low fee private school with all the requirements fulfilled. Yeah, right. Are, are there requirements around the curriculum, like, you know, having to follow any national curriculum? Yes, yeah, there there usually is. It's It would usually be required that you follow the national curriculum and with some exceptions for, you know, more elite private schools like, say, the British International School or an American school or a French school. And it's a common question people ask about the curriculum or what are these schools actually teaching? That's actually something that I don't think really any school would particularly want to deviate from because they are trying to attract local parents who want their children to do well in national exams, you know, at whatever level these national exams actually um, start to take place or, or appear. So there's really no interest in, in not teaching the national curriculum. Hmm. So maybe there might be some exceptions, but usually they would just use the sort of standard textbooks that are available and, and follow that curriculum and um, try and prepare children for, for national exams when at whatever level those kick in. So one of the arguments for having sort of the private market in education is that this is a way to create innovation or better quality education. From your experience researching Lofi private schools in multiple countries, is there any truth in the ideas that they create innovation and, and are of better quality than, say, compared to government schools? Yeah, that's been a, a really interesting one. I have never seen any innovation. I mean, when I think about innovation in education, I'm thinking about an interesting and different way of actually getting children to learn um, and in these schools, there really isn't any of that because they're relying on, on teachers who very often are, are not very experienced, not very well qualified. And they're basically just taking children through the curriculum as they find it in the textbooks. So it's very much teacher in standing in front of a class, teacher focused, teacher centered, teacher led and very much reliant on the textbooks and, you know, chalk and talk, as some people call it, um, you know, copying down from the blackboard. Um, and this happens even in, I would say, sort of middle fee private schools, like ones that I'm thinking of in, in the area in India that, that we operate in. 
schools that are considered slightly more aspirational in the in the sort of small regional towns, they get their students to to copy model answers off the board into their notebooks. And so it's basically just copying and memorizing. And um, that is something that, you know, parents who maybe don't have that much experience of education themselves, they, they see their children's notebooks and, and see that these answers have been very neatly copied off the board. And they think that, you know, this is a good thing. And, and so, no, I don't see Lofi private schools as an avenue to any kind of innovation in education. I, and I think, you know, if, if we get into the area of the chain schools and the internationally owned chain schools, I think most of the innovation that's coming there is, is around management and things around the classroom, but not really things that are happening in terms of teaching and learning. So, so yeah. So when it comes to better quality, I mean, is there any evidence that there is, you know, better quality education coming out of these low-fee private schools? The evidence on that is really mixed so far. So some studies find that when the background of the children is taken into account, so, you know, you're, you're basically trying to sort of control for or, or take into account the fact that the children are generally better off than children who are going to government schools. Some studies find that there is an additional private school effect so the even the low fee private schools might be bringing a sort of value add or you know slightly higher levels of learning than government schools other studies have not found any effect of of private schools in some places and then in some studies it's been a bit sort of inconclusive um so it looks very much like a lot of what's happening is just a concentration of better resourced children, um, you know, slightly wealthier children who have more support from their households, all clustered together in these low-fee private schools. And then on top of that, the teachers are generally present and teaching more than in government schools. So they have that bit of advantage as well. Right. So there is, there is some evidence to suggest that they are doing that little bit better. But I always like to, to say that it's it's really, really relative. So if you're taking, you know, the, the very low bar of almost no learning that happens in government schools in many places, then, you know, if you find that private schools are facilitating that little bit more learning, still you find yourself far and away below a bar of what we would put actual, you know, good quality education at. So they're still way below that bar. Huh. And, and so in, in your experience and in your research and working in, in schools, are the, what are the major downsides of low-fee private schools or medium-fee private schools? I would say that this inevitable stratification that's that takes place. So you get a complete separation within a local area between you know, the, the haves or, you know, the almost haves or the slightly haves and the have-nots. So you will have all of the least able, least resourced, least supported children clustered together in, in government schools with teachers who then are even less motivated to try and help them to learn. So, yeah, I, I would say the stratification in local society and then 
overall in in the whole country. I mean, it's you know, the, it's just really leaving the poorest behind. But at the same time, I can't bring myself to to come down against these schools or against parents using them because who would want to sacrifice their child, you know, if they had any money to be able to send their child to a private school when they see government teachers not doing anything. Mm. So it's a really difficult situation. Are there are there ways to improve the public system, to improve the government schools, you know, in a way that allows for equality? It sounds as if one of the big things you're worried about is the inequality that these low-fee private schools produce. And not to say that government schools necessarily, you know, create equality. I mean, they also can reproduce inequality. Um, but, you know, is there a movement in that direction towards some sort of alternative that that strengthens the public system? Well, I would say that there's a lot, there are many people who call for that. I've, I've written about that in my own writing. Um, yeah, it, it, there's a slightly bizarre thing that goes on with people who are sort of pro-private schools who also acknowledge that they're really still not that great quality. As I just said, they might be just ahead of the government schools, but still nowhere near an objectively high standard of quality. A lot of them also say, well, these schools have to improve. But I've written ever since I started writing about this that there isn't really any getting away from the need to improve some kind of fee-free option. Like, you know, it needs the government school system will still always be needed by the poorest if the international community is really serious about achieving education for all children. But as for how to do it, it's extremely difficult to see a way when certain entrenched patterns of you know civil service behavior and functioning are, are just so difficult to budge. And in my book, I write about the example of the, the Delhi municipal government schools um, for the upper primary and, and secondary levels and, and how the, the government of Delhi has managed to, to really turn those schools around to the point where there are parents bringing children back to government schools. Hmm. But, you know, okay, Delhi is a massive city, but it's still a, a relatively limited part of the country. And I think a lot of what's gone on there has to do with the philosophy of the, the Aam Admi Party that is running the, the Delhi government. So, yeah, so I write in my book about the cases that I could find where reform for public schooling happened as a result of decades of or many years of of work of really, really committed people. Hmm. So I don't see that the kind of reform ideas that that are suggested by a lot of um you know, international development consultants and people like that. I, I don't see that there's really any avenue to to bring in a, a policy solution to government schooling turnaround. I think it has to come from within mm. and it's going to be a slow road for many places. And, and while that's happening, parents will continue to use low-fee private schools when they can afford to. In your in your sort of research on on you know on how change might have happened within public schools, did that end up making you change your sort of activities and actions in the local community where you run the 
I'll call it a Lofi private school for lack of a better word. But, you know, in a way, are you engaged with sort of the local government to sort of, you know, try and engage and make changes in the public school system in that community? That was something that we actually started out hoping to do. Mm. That was absolutely something we intended. We didn't want to just start a school just to serve a, a limited number of children. We, we had hoped to have interaction with the government system around the school. But as sad and defeatist as it may sound, you quickly learn that that's not something that can happen. Hmm. So, you know, the government school teachers are usually the best trained and and at least in some of the areas that I've studied this. So, they are they are probably best placed to be able to actually to do something, but the the way civil service operations go on, it it just it isn't happening and they wouldn't want to interact because you would basically be um, showing a, a judgment of what they're doing or not doing. So there isn't really an avenue for that. And it's it's really sad to say, but it's just the way it is. Hmm. It's a really interesting insight from someone that's sort of very involved in, you know, a local community with the school and, and working in a hamlet with parents and children and, and sort of knows the local politics, sort of getting away from more national level policy issues that, you know, can or cannot happen and may or may not have any effect. So thinking about it from that very local level is quite an interesting insight. I mean, of course, now in India, the you know, there's this awful sort of uptick in COVID and it, it's making news worldwide every day. It seems to be getting worse. What has happened in your school? So we had been following the guidance that, that in-person classes have have been stopped for a long time now. Um, we had been teaching online, so struggling with that. Um, but that has been very much like what I've read from other countries as well, even in the UK, where teachers have reported that, you know, the, again, the, the least motivated or the students who are the least, um, able and probably the, the less well off students have not really participated in the online classes. And mm. uh, because of course, again, it, it requires an, an internet enabled device and, and a data connection and all this that a lot of these people didn't have before. So again, you're getting this thing where the, the most motivated, the most able, the most well-resourced families are the ones going out and literally buying a smartphone for their child to, to continue with classes. And then it's only just been very recently that we stopped classes altogether. In fact, this very day is the first day that we haven't run any online classes anymore because my husband has just been being told by everyone that, that the teachers themselves are ill. So they, they have fever there. So we just had to, there's no one left. There's the, the school, they can't even, I mean, they were struggling up through yesterday to be doing classes online while feeling awful with fever and, and things. So, hmm. so as of today, there's no school left for us at the moment. So um, where it will go from here, it's, it's the situation is really, really dire. I'm so sorry. I, I hope, you know, you and, and your husband and, and the school can work through this as well as, you know, everyone in India. I mean, 
it's just it, it's a terrible situation to to read about. Yeah, Joanna Harma, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. It was a pleasure to talk, and best of luck with your school and and your research. Thank you so much, Will. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Joanna Herma is a writer and researcher on education and development. Her new book is Low-Fee Private Schooling and Poverty in Developing Countries. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushi Kwaba, Fatih Akhtas, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Angunle, Diang Jian, Annabella Afro Boteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Che Mensa. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shockdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.